book of Esther, chapter 2. We're continuing in this book. We'll be here in this book all fall until Advent. Uh, I've entitled it, A Tale of Chance and Choice. There's an interesting interaction between human choices and God's providence. So last week we read about the king's six-month feast where he tried to impress all the important people in the kingdom, in his empire, and only in the end to be humiliated by the defiance of his own queen, the courageous Queen Vashti. After refusing to come out before the king and his drunken buddies, Vashti could not remain queen any longer, and so she was banished. So this is where we pick up the story today. Let's read together Esther chapter 2. You can follow along as I read. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away when Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with the seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her 
that's her own daughter, to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all the officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Well, if you read the book of Esther, and I encourage you to read the whole book, it will help you figure out how the story goes. But if you read the whole book carefully, you must have noticed that God's name is not mentioned anywhere in the book. This is unusual for a book that's in the Bible, a book about God, and yet God's name is never mentioned. In fact, not only the name of God is not mentioned, but all religious language has been taken out on purpose. It seems that even when the text or the story calls for some religious language, it's, it's gone, it's not, it's not there. For example, at the end of chapter 4, Esther calls on all the Jews to fast for her because she was going to go into the king unsummoned, taking a huge risk. And so she asks people to fast, but she doesn't ask people to pray. Why? It's weird. Usually it's fast and pray, and yet here prayer is omitted. It's on purpose. It's deliberate. Most commentators agree that the author of Esther purposefully keeps God behind the scenes. His goal is to show that God who works through miracles, like in the days of Moses and Elijah, also is the God who works through normal circumstances of life. God uses natural means, as the author of Esther asserts, as well as supernatural means. Ordinary events as well as extraordinary events. So in other words, Esther draws her attention to God's invisible work, or what theologians call providence. I don't know if you're familiar with the term providence. We use it a lot at church. It's, it's God's overseeing the world that he created working through various circumstances and achieving his purposes. So today, let's talk about this invisible work of God, his work behind the scenes through the ordinary natural means. And I'd like us to look at the following three aspects. Let's look at the reality of his invisible work. Secondly, let's look at the purpose of his work. And lastly, at the proof of his work. So the reality of it, the purpose of it. And then finally, if you will not still be convinced, to the proof of his work. Now, if you're a Christian, most of you are, 
You've likely experienced times in your life when God seems very real, when God is obviously present and obviously at work in your life. Perhaps a swift and clear, specific answer to your prayer or a healing in your life or in the life of somebody you know, a supernatural provision when you're hurting for money and a check shows up out of nowhere, um, maybe a mystical encounter with Christ through prayer, or a miraculous protection when you're driving and, and uh, God obviously saves you from harm. You've seen those kind of things happen in your life if you're a Christian, and such experiences seem to bridge the gap between the natural world and the supernatural world. It's in those times that you are convinced that God is, in fact, involved with us, that he's listening, that he's working, that he is helping us. Those times happen. They're real experiences for Christians. But what about the other 95% of your life? What about all the rest of your life where, where there's, no, there's no miracles around you? There's no supernatural happenings that you can credit God with. What about the rest of your life, those long stretches of time when everything seems to go according to the natural laws of life with an occasional dose of change? That's most of our lives, isn't it? Has God stopped working? Has God stopped caring for us and helping us? Is He there at all when you can't see Him working? When you can't point to an obvious example of His work? Is he still working in our lives? Is he still present? That's a really big question that we need to answer. So I'd like you to listen carefully. And this is probably the main thing you want to take away from this sermon. Do not mistake God's invisibility for his inactivity or indifference. Do not mistake God's invisibility for his inactivity or his indifference. In other words, just because God is invisible, that doesn't mean he's inactive, that he's passive, that he's not working. And it doesn't mean that he's indifferent, meaning that he doesn't care for you anymore. Just because you can't point to a miraculous time of God's work right now, miraculous instant, it does not mean that God isn't there. It doesn't mean that God isn't working just as hard to help you, to protect you, to care for you. God is always at work. Scripture is very clear that God is always at work. As William Cooper said in his famous hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, which, which is singing sometimes. He said, Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. His skill is unfailing. God is always achieving His purposes. His sovereign will is always being accomplished. God is always at work. That is the Christian teaching that we need to affirm from Scripture. And I'll give you some passages a little bit later. But I'm afraid that a lot of Christians, maybe some of you here today, seem to think like we are deists, not Christians, like we're deists. And the deists think that God has created everything and he set up natural laws by which creation works. And then he stepped aside. He left. 
So the metaphor they typically use is that God is a watchmaker that made a beautiful watch. And he wound it up, and he set it up, and then he left it. I'm afraid that some Christians think of God in that way. Sure, he's the creator. Sure that he set up the patterns of life and, and the world. And yet, he's not really generally involved all that much with his creation. So unless it's a miraculous event like the parting of the Red Sea or, or you know, the feeding of the 5,000 or something like that, unless God works in that way, we, many of us, sort of assume that he doesn't work at all, that he has stepped aside, that he's left his creation. But the Bible consistently teaches that God is always present and God is always at work. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, a good verse to memorize. The Bible teaches that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things, without exceptions, according to the counsel of His will. His will is normative to everything that happens in life. Colossians 1.17 is another great passage, and it teaches us that not only that everything was created by Christ and for Christ, but that in Christ all things hold together. All things hold together in Christ. In other words, not only that Christ is the creator, he's the upholder, he's the preserver, he's the governor of everything that exists. This is a great image to have in your mind when you think about everything is held together by Christ. It's as if God holds everything in his hands, and if he lets go, everything falls apart which means that continuously God's energy is exerted to keep the world in existence, and to keep it going. And so if he stepped aside, it would fall apart. God's power and God's wisdom are needed moment by moment for the world to exist. God, in the biblical narrative, in the biblical truth that we affirm, God never stepped away from the world. He never relinquished his rights as the master and the Lord of all creation. He never gave that up. He still claims everything as his own. Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch Calvinist and politician, he famously said this, and you may have heard this quote before. Kuyper said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. There's nothing in creation that Christ doesn't claim as his own, that Christ doesn't claim to be his. He's never stepped away. He's never let go. He still wants all of it to be restored back to him under his rule, under his care, and in his loving wisdom. So instead of this analogy of the watch that the deists like so much, Martin Lloyd-Jones offers a different metaphor, and this will be helpful for us if we think about providence of God's working through circumstances. Lloyd-Jones says this, the doctrine of providence tells us that the universe and everything within it is like a great ship which is being piloted from day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, second to second by God himself. The universe, all of creation, is like a great ship that God pilots, that God captains, that God 
makes sure moves the right way, achieves and accomplishes his purposes, gets to the destination he wants it to get. God is completely in charge of the world. Now, if I could expand a little bit on Lloyd-Jones' analogy, imagine that the ship that is piloted by God has both a sail and a motor. So, most of the time, the pilot is using the currents and the wind patterns, the natural things of creation, to get the ship to where it needs to go, to keep it on course. But every once in a while, he starts up the motor and goes against the wind and against the currents. So in both cases, God is in full control of the ship. But sometimes, and most of the time, he's using natural laws and natural patterns that he himself set up. But sometimes, God will go completely against the natural things of life and perform miracles. And those are the supernatural things that we talk about where God just shows up in spite of expectations and does something unusual, unexpected. And he does it against the natural laws. Those are miracles. And it could be a little miracle when God answers prayer in an unusual way or heals you instead of what the, you know, in spite of what the doctors told you would happen to you. Or it could be great miracles like parting of the Red Sea. Those kind of things from history of Israel and the church. Now, both times, God is completely in control. Both times, God pilots the ship second to second. But he uses different means. God is always at work, whether using natural or supernatural means to achieve his purposes. Now, in the book of Esther, which is why we need books like Esther in the Bible, God is hidden, he's silent. He's working behind the scenes, he's invisible. He operates within the cultural and political environment of ancient Persia. He uses ordinary circumstances. He arranges events and human decisions in such a way that all his purposes are achieved. God is still in charge of the ship, but he's using natural means here. So look at our text today. Let's just, just think about this, this chain of events, this, this series of very fortunate events in our case, all leading to a certain outcome of salvation for God's people. Now look how many different things have to be there at the right time, at the right place, Otherwise, the whole thing doesn't work out. If you take just one of those details out, the whole story doesn't happen. If the king was not going to war with Greece, in our chapter 1, he would not have announced a great feast. If he did not have too much to drink at the feast, he would not have demanded that Vashti show off her beauty before his guests. If Vashti did what was expected of her by cultural norms and palace politics, Esther would never have had a chance to become the queen. If Esther did not impress Haggai, the eunuch, she would not have gotten advantage over the other women in the harem. If the king was in a cranky mood and rejected Esther that night, she would not have become queen. If Mordecai did not happen to discover an assassination plot and save the king, he would not have been honored later in the story and put in the position of influence. Now the story continues in the latter chapters, and if the king remembered to honor Mordecai right away, which he forgot, in fact he honored Haman, the enemy of the Jews, instead, for some reason, Haman would have prevailed. If the king did not have insomnia that one night, later on, he would have never remembered to honor Mordecai. Remember, he, was, he had a 
hard time sleeping, so he was reading the Chronicles of the Kings and, and found that the one instance where Mordecai saved his life. And, and he thought, we forgot to honor him, so we need to honor him now. And because he did it then and not earlier, that put Mordecai at an advantage over Haman later in the story. If the king did not listen to Esther when Esther was begging him to cancel that edict against the Jews and to punish Haman, and if Haman did not awkwardly fall on Esther when he was begging for mercy, this, this is a very funny part of the story later on. He's begging for mercy and it kind of, kind of falls over and, and, uh, and it looks like he, he might be trying to do something to Esther and the king walks in just right at the right moment, is very upset with Haman and hangs him and, and all his family. Now if that didn't happen, if it was not that one awkward instance in, misinterpreted by the king, then who knows what would have happened to the Jews. And if the Jews were annihilated, if all those things didn't happen, and in fact the edict that was made came into reality, Jesus would not have been born, and you and I would not have been forgiven and accepted with God. It is amazing how important those little details are, how the order of events and the timing matter. Everything had to happen in this exact order, at the same exact time that it was supposed to happen, and if it didn't, the Jews would not have been saved, Jesus wouldn't have come, salvation of the world would not have happened. Now, I am deliberately making it big like this, and, and you may think I'm exaggerating, but that is the story of Scripture. That's the story of the prophecies. All the things had to happen a certain way. And so the book of Esther teaches us that God is in control and that he's always at work, that there are no accidents in history and in your life. And while people make meaningful choices, and we see that in this book, people are making choices. They're making decisions that are important. And they're, they're writing edicts and have decrees. And at the same time, all those things fit perfectly in God's very detailed plan of achieving very specific outcomes. While to us, life often seems random, so full of accidents and coincidences, everything happens according to God's plan. Now, let me give you another analogy. You may have heard this one. It's an analogy of the tapestry. So when you go home, please take your tapestry off your wall and turn it over. Look on the other side. I was actually going to use the analogy of a Persian rug this morning and it actually doesn't work. Persian rugs, turns out, look exactly the same on the other side. Who knew? So don't do it with your Persian rug, which, by the way, everybody by now should have a Persian rug in their house with the amount of Persian rug stores we have in the city. So the tapestry. I have to go back to the classic tapestry analogy. When, when you look at the tapestry, you look at the front and there's a perfect picture. You look in the back and it's hard to tell the patterns. There's a lot of knots. There's a lot of splashes of color. And it's hard to pick out what the picture actually is from the back. But from the front, it's perfect. Everything is at the right place. And so that is our life, and that is the picture of providence, where God is looking from the front, and we are looking from the back. When we're looking at the back of the tapestry, we say, how in the world is this beautiful? It just seems like there's a lot of mistakes that were made. But yet you look from the front, and you see a perfect picture the way it's exactly supposed to be, and it's beautiful, and you can put it on your wall if you like tapestry. Now, that's our life. You look at your life and you think, man, there's so many things that seem so random, so accidental, 
so bad. There's just some things that happen that they just should not be happening. And yet, God who looks at the front of the tapestry says, all those things matter. All those things are significant. All of them fit perfectly in my plan. So does your life seem chaotic and random right now? Is God silent and hidden right now for you? Learn from the book of Esther. God is always at work, and God is always in control of your life. So if that is true, if God is in fact always at work, always in control, what is the purpose of his work, his invisible work? What's the goal of his, what is, what is he trying to accomplish through all this arrangement of circumstances? Now the answer is hinted at in our text and is made very clear in the other passages of scripture. In our chapter, the narrator makes a point to introduce Mordecai to us as a Jew. He says, in, in our chapter we read that, he says, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, Mordecai. He gives us his lineage. He tells us how he was, he was taken away from Jerusalem. He was, he was brought to Babylon with, with all the exiles. And then later on, when Esther is in the harem, it's, the narrator makes a point of telling us that she concealed her ethnic identity. She did not tell everybody that she was a Jew. So why make such a big deal out of their national or their ethnic identity? It's a hint. The narrator is trying to show us that they are part of God's people. They're part of God's covenant community that God has committed to his people. And that they, the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, promises that he made to Moses and to David, they're going to come true in the lives of Esther and Mordecai and their people. So what we see in the book of Esther is that there's a reason why God is arranging circumstances. He's trying to save his people. Not other people, but his people. It's very clear that God deliberately and meticulously works in history to protect and to save and to bless his people. The people that he made a covenant with. The people that he loves, that he chose, that he promised to bless. All those promises apply to the Jews during the time of Esther. Everything that happens is done for the benefit of God's people. So God is always at work, and God is always at work for the good of his people. This is very important. You cannot read this book and simply marvel at how God arranges history. You need to read this book and marvel at how God arranges history for the sake of his people not for anybody else, for the sake of his people. So how does it apply to us? Well, we are God's people. God made a covenant with us. Every day, or every week, or every day for some, every week, we come to the table, and we are reminded of God's new covenant in Christ with us. That his body broken, his blood spilled, and through it a promise is made that God will bless us as he speaks. That God will forgive us, and accept us, and love us as he speaks. So if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, if your faith has been placed in Christ, if you are forgiven and accepted through Christ by God, if you've been converted, all those things mean the same. If that's true for you, you are part of God's people. And God is committed to you as his child. And God works out all the details in history for your sake and for your good. Remember the, one of the verses that Dave read this morning. Romans 8.28 
there's one verse that is worthy to be tattooed on your skin. I said, that may be, that may be one. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. If you are called according to His purpose, if you're a Christian, all things work together for good for you. Even if it's painful, even if it seems bad and wrong, all is meant for your good, for your benefit. Listen to B.B. Warfield, a serious theologian with a silly name, B.B. Warfield. He says, All, though for the present it seems grievous, all, though it be our sin itself, all, there's no exception allowed. In all things, God cooperates so with us that it can conduce only to our good. Our eternal good, obviously. He says, he says that there's no exception. That anything that happens in your life, even your sin, your sin included in that. And in the context of Romans, because there's Romans 7 before Romans 8, it makes perfect sense. That even your sin is somehow part of God's plan to produce good in your life for your eternal benefit. Now, Warfield brings up a good point, an important point. We might be willing to see God working invisibly in positive events of life. That's not that hard. I think a lot of us talk about you know, timely promotions and educational opportunities and how we met our spouses and we say, man, God was just so good to arrange circumstances, it's just this way, so this would happen. But what about the negative events of life? That's where we have a little bit more trouble, and that's the point that Warfield brings up. Is God still at work then? And the answer from the book of Esther is yes, that even when negative things happen to you, even when you are yourself perpetrating negative things, God is still at work, and God is still working it for your good if you are a Christian. Now look at some of the links in the chain of events leading to the preservation of God's people in the book of Esther. Mordecai saves the king, but the king forgets to reward him. In fact, he promotes and honors Haman in the next chapter. We'll talk about it next week. An odd thing happens. Not only Mordecai is ignored and neglected and, and not rewarded for what he did, but his greatest enemy is rewarded and promoted. Now, at the time, imagine what Mordecai felt. Probably felt pretty bad. Rejection is not a good feeling for most people. And yet, we know that because he was not rewarded then, an opportunity to be rewarded came later. And because of that, other events happened and God's people were saved. Now, look at, look at Esther. How would you feel if you were just taken and that's the language, the passive language of, of the story. She was taken from her house and put into the harem of the king. This could not have been fun for her. She was taken. I'm assuming against her will. Now, I think she's trying to use the situation for her benefit, but she was taken probably against her will. Now, how did she feel then? We don't, we don't know. But she might have felt pretty rotten, as if God is not at work, as if God is not in control at that moment. And yet, if she was not taken and if she was not given this opportunity, God's people would be lost. Now, if you belong to God through the new covenant in Jesus, if you are His, 
everything works for your good. Positive and negative events in your life are arranged by God himself in such a way as to achieve your greatest eternal benefit. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that you can trust God that all the things in your life, positive and negative, actually work together for your good? Which means that things like flat tires and losses of jobs and bankruptcy and divorce and any kind of failure, any kind of rejection, all is used by God for your good. Now what if some of those negative events are the result of my own sin? Now it's easy to talk about things happening to me and say, well, God is going to turn it for good. But what if things that I do, the negative things that I do, the sins that I commit, well, God still uses even that for your good. And there's a mystery there because God is not authoring sin. God is not causing you to sin. Scripture is very clear on that. James 1 talks about how God is not tempting you to sin. God doesn't want you to sin. And yet we see how sin is turned into something good repeatedly. That God is using even your own sin, the sins of Christians, for their good. Now if you look at the story of Esther and the rabbis, uh, the ancient and the modern interpreters of Esther, have a lot of trouble with this story. Because what's a nice Jewish girl doing in the harem of a pagan king? There is a moral problem. here, And the rabbis write about it. And they're trying to reconcile that and trying to come up with all sorts of things to explain what is happening here so that Esther still comes out to be righteous. I don't know if you can do that. Because she goes along with everything that is given to her. So she would get into the best position to gain favor of the king. She's going through all the beautification practices. She, she, she manipulates the situation to get the approval and the, the, the favor of, of the eunuch. So she would be put in the best position. And then she pleases the king. I'm not going to be graphic, but she pleased the king. That's a, an immoral act. She's not married to the king. The king is pagan. She's not keeping the law. She's not keeping Sabbaths. So how, how can we explain that? Somebody like that, who's a very worldly person, and I think something happens to Esther later on, so we'll deal with that later. But such a worldly person, such a not obedient religious person, is still blessed by God, and God is still working the situation for her good. There's one answer to that, grace. The answer that maybe some rabbis don't understand. The answer is grace, that God works in your life even when you are in sin even when you are disobedient to him. And he turns all of those things to your greatest eternal benefit. So even though Esther was not obedient to God, God still worked in her and changed her, as we will see later in the story. This is very comforting to us. Sure, you might be going through a, through a bad period in your life right now. And you might be committing sins yourself or other sins are committed against you. But don't forget that even in the midst of that, God is working for your good, for your benefit because you're his. And he will not leave you or forsake you. Now lastly, let's look at the proof of his invisible work. So God is always at work, always for the good of his people. And there's one decisive argument to prove that. Something you can always look back at when doubting God's invisible work in your life. 
And the proof of the God's invisible work is in the cross of Jesus. You look at the cross, and what happened there exactly? What happened on the cross? Let's hear from Peter in Acts 2, verse 22 and on. Peter preaches, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosened the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying there's a definite plan at work, that there was foreknowledge and plan of God at work at the cross, that Jesus died because God willed him to die. And yet, Peter turns around and says, you killed him. You killed him according to God's plan. What do we see here? We see God's providence. We see that on the one hand, you can look at it and say, this is the darkest hour in history. This is the darkest moment when the Son of God who came to save the world is ruthlessly killed on the cross by both Romans and his own people, his chosen Jewish people. Both are contributing. And some scholars look at that and say, what Jesus wanted to do, he could not do because his life was cut short by the cross. But you can also look at the same situation, the same event from a completely different perspective of saying that through all of that, in the midst of all of that, God was working out his definite plan. And that when Jesus died, God was at work. That God accomplished something great. And what is it? Salvation of the world. In the darkest time in history, God was doing the brightest thing in history. The most glorious thing in history. And at the time, when God was silent and hidden and invisible, and Jesus himself was crying out for him to be there. Not because God wasn't, but God wasn't felt. God wasn't there in a tangible, visible, audible way that Jesus craved. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, God did not forsake him. Because through it, God's purposes were being accomplished. The silent, hidden, God accomplished a great thing on the cross of Jesus. For the good of his people, God is always at work, God is always in control. When you look at your life, and it seems random, and it seems weird, and it's painful, and it's hard, you have to look at the cross and say, that's how it seemed then, even more so, and yet, God was at work, God was in control, and God was accomplishing the greatest good for his people. So perhaps, in my situation right now, God is also working out my best good right now. You have to hold on to the cross. You have to hold on to the gospel. In the times in your life when God is hidden and silent and invisible. Let's pray. And after I'm done praying, I encourage you to come to the table. And when you come to the table, you meet God, you meet Jesus. That is the point, to be reminded of the covenant, to be reminded of what he's done for you, to be reminded of the cross. And let this grace that comes to the table, through the elements, through the, through the, the broken body, the spilled blood of Jesus, 
let His grace come into your life and let it illumine your life and talk to you about providence and God's commitment to you even in the circumstances that you're in right now. Lord, we thank you that you work in different ways and we thank you that you always work, that you're always pursuing our greatest good and that you're doing that by grace, not because we deserve it, not because we have performed well in our religious duties and now you've got to give us something for it, but because you love us in your own loving way, because of your own loving nature. And so you chose us and you loved us. And you've committed yourself to us. and You sent Jesus to die and rise for us so we could be your people, be blessed and forgiven and accepted by you. So we pray that as we go through different times in life when you are invisible, let us not doubt that you are working. Let us not doubt that you still care. Let us look at the cross and remember you're always at work, always for the good of your people. Father, I pray for those who may not be part of your people, may not be your children. We ask that you would speak to them, that your spirit would come and liberate their hearts so they could love you, so they could see you for who you are. Not just a watchmaker who steps aside, but a pilot of the ship that they are. A pilot who is wise and powerful, leading them to where they need to be, to the best place. Give us that confidence. And we pray that as we come to the table, we would remember what you have done for us. We would rejoice in the gospel itself. Holy Spirit, come and change us. Transform us so we can believe. So we can believe in your love.